The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to HealthEd's Going Viral. I am Dr David Lim. It is Thursday, the 3rd of November. In this COVID update, Associate Professor James Troer discusses how globally the COVID pandemic has had an impact on tuberculosis, which we did not know about. He will provide an insight on the various effects COVID has had on infectious diseases and what has happened over the last two years in Australia. Professor Trower, tell us about yourself. Thanks. Yeah, I'm a respiratory and general and public health physician. I worked in TB control for quite a while, now currently head of epidemiological modelling at the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Monash University. Uh, And so that's meant a lot of COVID work over the last couple of years. And I'm currently, my clinical practice is in cystic fibrosis at the Alfred Hospital, um, but really primarily focused on research and and epidemiological modelling of infectious disease transmission. Well, James, today we're going to look at TB, in particular COVID and TB. Now, we know that during the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been several changes in in infectious diseases in Australia. For example, for a while there was very little flu, now there's a lot of flu, and we're seeing monkeypox and other crazy things like Japanese tephalitis coming in Australia when we had not had to think about them. TB is not something that GPs generally think about in Australia. Mm. Has there been any change in how TB is presenting and what we're supposed to be seeing in Australia with TB with regard to the COVID pandemic? I I mean, I guess I'm not currently on the front line of this because I haven't practiced in TB for the last couple of years, but there there definitely is. Uh, First of all, I suppose, just to think about how that's played out across the world, there's been just a decrease in the number of notifications from TB. And I mean, that's the main data stream that we have to gauge the size of the epidemic generally. And that's just fallen a lot. And it's, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to be absolutely definitive on what the cause of that is. But I think everybody agrees that it's because people are seeking care less. So people with people with significant episodes of TB are just not able to get to their care providers, and this is outside of Australia, particularly in high burden countries. And so it's still really, there's modelling that's been done, but it still really remains to be seen how that's going to play out. We expect that there'll be an increase in transmission, an increase in deaths, but I think until until we really see health services get back to normal, it will be really hard to say what that is. But I think Australia is really different from that because TB is a disease in Australia, primarily of migrants. In fact, Australia, even more than just about any other country in the world, it's really concentrated in our migrant population. And uh, it's sort of like 80 to 90%, even above 90% of cases are now in in, uh, first generation migrants to Australia. And so we've just had a lot less migration and your risk of TB is the highest in those first couple of years after you migrate. So we've had a lot 
fewer people coming through in the last mm. couple of years. And so we've had a lot less. I think that that will have played out in terms of the cases of TB that we've seen. Although actually speaking to people, I mean, that's what you would expect. Speaking to people in TB um, units, there's actually been still, I think, considerable numbers of cases. Anything that's contributing to the cases staying high, even though it seems as if it should be falling. Yeah, I mean, I guess we don't fully understand that. And as I say, I'm not, I haven't really been quite so much at the front line over the last couple of years. Um, but I guess even in, in Australia, you have these factors where people are finding it harder to access care for conditions that normally they would see, you know, they might often present first to primary care or to specialist chest clinics. The patient themselves might not think that they've got TB uh, initially. And so they might present late, they might present with more severe disease, and they might infect family members during that course. And that's something I that's a classical part of TB is that, you know, when you first get a cough, you think, oh, it's just a cough, but you only begin to get worried as it gets more and more severe over the course of a few weeks. And by the time you get to that point, you've often infected people who might be from your household or from your broader community. And so those those factors have definitely been playing out overseas. It's possible they've been playing out to some extent within Australia as well. Although in most, I mean, in most big cities in Australia, we think there is not a lot of community transmission of TB. What I'm hearing is that it's possible that if there was, because people are not presenting uh, to care, uh, and cough now being a very common symptom, um, mm. maybe even presenting less, uh, if you like, early. So what can a GP expect to find in a patient who presents late uh, without actually saying, look, all oh, my family's coughing? So if they present to a GP, and let's take a GP who does not see that many migrants, so our familiarity with TB is not great. How do we keep our radars on high alert? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I think it is a really difficult thing for GPs to have that sort of the right level of awareness because the cases are really, really concentrated in migrants in Australia in particular. And yet, of course, TB can infect anybody. So it's almost always on your list of differential diagnoses it can affect us about any part of the body as well. So I guess what some of the phrases that I typically use when I'm counselling patients is watch out for symptoms of an infection, particularly an infection of your chest, particularly when that infection is getting worse and worse over several weeks. And if you've been seeing a GP or, or any sort of care provider and been trying antibiotics and the standard sort of antibiotics just aren't helping with your symptoms and you're continuing to get worse... Um, then that's a good time to think about TB. And also, I mean, I'm sort of, I'm slightly downplaying these epidemiological risk factors, but they are really important, actually. Like if you're from a high risk country and um, overseas, of course, some countries have far, far higher rates than others. And if you've recently migrated and if you have other risk factors that might suppress your immune system or as you're getting older, those are really important factors to bear in mind as well. And then there are also, I mean, I guess you also have to think about those sort of classic symptoms of TB. So weight loss, general fatigue and malaise. Uh, and yeah, if you've got somebody who's coughing up considerably more sputum than usual, and if there's blood in that sputum, those are classical symptoms of TB, of course, as well. What about in our First Nations population? Uh, is yeah. increased risk? 
There certainly is relative to the Australian born population, but not relative to migrants to Australia, particularly from high risk settings. So, I mean, I guess we've had strong historical TB control programs across the country. And I guess (laughs) I'm not sure to what extent that's sort of played out in Indigenous populations, but there has been, you know, a lot of work done, I think, with Indigenous communities to try to control TB and a lot of Indigenous-led efforts to control TB within their communities. And uh, to some extent, they've paid off. So we've sort of got this situation where if you compare Indigenous rates to non-Indigenous rates in Australia outside of the migrant population, the rates are a lot higher. But I guess also I think there are other conditions that are much more important Mm -hmm. for First Nations communities than TB. So, again, it's tricky. I think you you definitely need to maintain that high level. You need to have it on your radar. It can always be something that is a differential diagnosis for such a broad range of conditions. And Indigenous people are at a higher risk. Um, But you have to sort of get that balance right as well, I suppose. Now, let's just imagine, James, if, uh, I have a patient, he's 48, uh, he has just come from a high-risk country maybe a year and a half ago. Uh, he tells me that he's been coughing quite a bit, uh, he feels tired, he is COVID negative. You suspect that TB is somewhere up there in the differential diagnosis. Yep. Talk me through the steps of how you would progress both uh, your clinical suspicion to confirmation with the right sorts of investigations. Yeah, so I guess the obviously, I suppose, well, I suppose it's obvious, it's obvious to me having practiced in the area for a while, but the absolutely critical thing is to get the bug. Like the, I mean, TB is an organism that we can identify microscopically and we can culture. So the real definitive way of making a diagnosis of TB is to get the bug. And overseas, I guess, you know, sometimes there's syndromic surveillance. If you see a young child in a high-risk setting with some lymph nodes up or something, you might just make a clinical diagnosis. But in Australia, we don't do that so much. We really try hard to always get the bug. And in, in addition to microscopy and culture, we now have additional tests and we have PCRs that are that are useful. So I guess the first thing I think to really stress about this particular 48-year-old patient is that it is never the wrong thing to ask for a sputum for TB examination. And what you write on the slip is sputum for AFBs. And that is always, you know, if you're ever thinking about it, if it ever crops up in your mind, it's never the wrong thing to do. So that's strongly encouraged. We often recommend three sputums. Sputum pulls a little bit more at night, so it's worth collecting it in the early morning. You can store it in your fridge if you want to get a couple of specimens off to the lab. There's a few sort of little practical considerations like that. And that's a really good first step. Also referring on to a chest clinic is another really good first step. I guess even at this really early stage when a 48-year-old has presented to you, it's also still worth thinking about infection control issues as well. If this 48-year-old happens to have uh, a newborn baby in the house with them and you really think that they are at super high risk, you know, you're, you're sort of like, you're almost sure. I mean, suppose their sputum's got streaks of hemoptysis in it it's been going for two weeks and they're losing weight and they've just had a baby or something like that or their wife is 
severely immunosuppressed, it is actually then worth thinking about, do they need to be admitted to hospital mm. for infection control while you're making the diagnosis? And even if those, if those factors are not the case, it might be just worth asking them to stay at home and uh, sort of essentially self-isolate while they're having this workup done. Um, so they're, they're some of the factors that I think it's worth thinking about really early on. Yeah. Two questions stems from that. Any role for imaging the lungs, a chest X-ray? Yeah, yeah. I mean, sorry, there are. I mean, and that I, probably one of the most important ones is the differential diagnosis, because of course, at this stage, uh, all my comments, I guess, pretty much relate to making the diagnosis of TB. And of course, even if the symptoms are classical, it's, uh, yeah, I think depending on how severe the symptoms how, are, how long they've been going for, a chest X-ray is very, very low dose of radiation. It's very useful test, I think, that can help you distinguish what's going on. And it also can be useful in making the diagnosis of TB itself because you might see classical features like cavitation or hyalur uh, lymphadenopathy, which might also be useful. So I think a chest X-ray is a really useful complementary examination. And again, like because the radiation is so low, it's rarely the wrong decision to do a chest X-ray as part of the workup. So yep, so I'd support that. Now, there are a couple of issues that comes from, say, uh, infection control. So let's just say that, um, yes, the sputum has come back and AFB has been seen. So yeah. what does it make now for us to, I guess, we obviously inform the public health unit. Mm -hmm. and will they be the one informing the workplace in other close contexts? And yeah. what, what do we do as health professionals who have been exposed? It can be a little bit of a tricky situation, of course, to manage if you're sort of maybe sitting in front of this patient and you've just seen the <laughs> AFB result come back. I mean, the first thing, you know, you've, you've got to think about the very, very short term, in fact, and you might actually just want to keep them in the room and put an N95 mask on or sort of ask them to remain in the room and step outside and work out exactly what you're going to do. And of course, in this situation, the solution is often not to just tell the patient to go to emergency and get further worked up. It's worth contacting um, perhaps the infectious diseases registrar at your local hospital or the um, if you're rural, perhaps it might be the general medical registrar to organise a direct admission to the ward. If you've, I guess that's if you're concerned about them having uh, currently active TB. And, and if they have AFBs in their sputum and they, you know, they're a 48 year old, I mean, there are AFBs that are not TB, but if, you know, if they fit ep epidemiologically and they have AFBs in their sputum, then typically they will need to be admitted to hospital. That's usually, that's usually the pathway that we would follow. I guess it's not totally universal across the world that that's what needs to be done. And it does vary a little bit state to state as well. So different states will have sort of different different, uh, I guess, levels of concern and periods of time that they'll keep patients isolated in hospital while they start treatment before they discharge them. But if they're, if they're sputum smear positive, which means AFB positive, then typically we'll admit them to hospital and, and start treatment from there. That's with active treatment. Um, what about latent TB? What, what, do we, what should we know about this? It's interesting that there's been a lot of discussion, I think, over the last few years about how 
TB is a continuum and there's active TB and there's latent TB and there's sort of these subacute forms in between. I actually think the distinction between active and latent TB is still really useful. I I talk about it a lot and I think it's a really important way of thinking about it. And I use it with use these terms with patients quite a lot. I think sometimes talking about it as a continuum can be quite confusing for patients. And it's and it's really important to understand the differences because if you if you sort of give a patient with latent TB the impression that they have TB, that could be quite stigmatizing in a lot of settings. And sort of blurring those boundaries can be, I think, counterproductive. Mm-hmm. So I really like to make make a pretty clear distinction when I'm talking to patients and talking about TB between latent TB and active TB. And they're very, very different, of course, and latent TB is much more prominent. Um, There's been some estimates that about a quarter of the world's population have latent TB, which just mean that essentially it's almost equivalent to saying that you've had significant exposure to the organism that causes TB at some point in your life. And by definition with latent TB, you don't have symptoms. You don't have the bug currently replicating and destroying tissue or causing any symptoms like that. So if you're concerned that somebody's got a cough that might be TB, you sort of you're already thinking about active TB and not about latent TB. So latent TB is essentially is immunological evidence of past exposure to TB. We used to very much use these uh, tuberculin skin tests and uh, the MAN2 test was the classic one that was used in Australia for many years and still is used quite a bit. Um, And we now have blood-based versions of these where you can get get an assessment of somebody's past exposure to TB that are are thought to be more specific to the TB organism itself and not just any sort of mycobacterium. And so we have Quantiferon. There are other versions of these tests overseas available, these blood-based tests of immunological memory of the TB organism. And um, and so they basically tell you, yeah, whether you've been exposed and they give a sense of what your future risk might be of getting TB. Yeah, and so you can then proceed on to talking about preventive treatments to protect people from future TB and uh, and you can counsel people about their risk of getting TB. I wonder whether or not, you know, with the fact that uh, with COVID-19, quite a quite a lot of the medications we use, particularly steroids, are immunosuppressing. What sorts of information should we give patients who have latent TB? So apart from avoiding steroids or making sure they go into the right hands if steroids are to be prescribed, mm. what else do we need to tell them? Yeah, and I, I guess a sort of a related issue to that is that often in hospitals, I think we're, we're sometimes not good enough in in Australia, because we're so unused to TB, at actually testing people ahead of things like that, giving people high dose steroids, or giving people significant immune immune suppressing medications, it's actually a good opportunity, particularly for people who have that epidemiological risk if they're born overseas in a high burden country, they should really have a test at that point. Also, because the test may be less likely to be accurate once they've started on those sorts of treatments, so. It's a good window to make sure that people have been appropriately tested before they then 
go on to an immunosuppressant and potentially uh, to start treatment as well to protect them uh, if, if their risk is going to be high enough. That does depend a little bit on what we're talking about, of course, if you're just starting on a moderate dose of prednisolone and it's going to be for a short period of time or you're hopeful it will be for you know, a short period of time and risk wasn't super high beforehand anyway, then I guess there is a bit of discussion which you'd usually take place at a chest clinic about whether or not it's worthwhile prescribing this preventive treatment ahead of time. But for somebody starting really high intensity immunosuppressants, it's really worth going down that track, testing, treating, getting the treatment started, preferably a few weeks into treatment if possible, and then start, and then holding off the immunosuppressants until you've had those few weeks of treatment before you actually start suppressing their immune system. Yeah. What I'm hearing, or I'm getting a sense of, James, is that if I have a patient who who has come to Australia not that long ago in the last two to three years from a high-risk country and has a condition such as an inflammatory colitis or inflammatory arthritis about to have immunosuppressing medications uh, or uh, has an acute exacerbation, say, of asthma uh, or has had acute exacerbations of asthma and therefore higher doses of oral steroids is a clear possibility at some stage, uh, are you saying that it's maybe a worthwhile thing to actually prove that they they don't have? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, because even from high risk settings, you know, a large proportion of people will not have latent TB, and so if you have a negative test result, then you can be pretty confident that you're not going to have to worry about it. And and yeah, I, I guess as I was saying, it does depend. There's a lot of grey area there. If if you think it's somebody who's just going to need a week of treatment with prednisolone for their asthma, then then by all means test, but it's still probably unlikely you, you're mm. going to be, it's, it might be unlikely you're going to give them preventive medication just on the basis of the prednisolone mm. that you're planning. Yes. Now, just for the sake of all our listeners, what tests would you, you know, the skin and bl- uh, blood test, what, what do we order? What is it called? Yeah, so I, I would just write, well, it's a it's a trade name. Always reluctant to mention trade names, but we have a manufacturer in Australia that makes Quantiferon, and so Quantiferon has very much become the go-to. And so, yeah, you just you just write that on a blood slip, and um, yeah, and if it comes back positive, uh, I think you know, unless you're unless you have some experience and confidence with TB, usually patients will then get referred off to a chest clinic for assessment, and that might just be as simple as, as saying, well. Sure, you've got a positive quantiferon, but your risk is very low and you don't need treatment. And they might may just come straight back after one clinic appointment, but that's still, you know, that's still reasonable to do. Now, what about the longer term surveillance or if you like, how we look after patients both uh, with latent TB and particularly those who have active TB now treated? That's the first question. Yep. And later, I would like a comment on multi-resistant TB once you've done that. So after patients have finished treatment with active TB, it depends a little on how severe it is. But if it's if it's sort of limited, suppose it's, you know, one, I don't know, lobe or one section of the lung, it was treated effectively and it healed with a small amount of scarring, which we see very commonly, those patients don't really, they don't really need 
there's not very much evidence to say that they need very long-term follow-up for years and years. They should be aware of the fact that they've been previously treated for TB and so they are at risk of future episodes compared to somebody who's never had TB. Um, they don't ever need a, one of those tests that we're talking about, like the quantifieron. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, the broader term for them is interferon gamma release assays or IGRAs. They don't ever need another IGRA because they have now had TB. They will have immunological evidence that they've had it in the past. Mm-hmm. And so that test then has very little value after mm-hmm. that episode. For latent TB, usually it's about making this decision about whether you're treating or whether you're not going to treat, give them preventive treatment so that they don't get TB in the future. Again, if they've completed it, if they haven't completed it, unless they're at particularly high risk, they also don't necessarily need longer term follow up. Mm -hmm. But all of those patients should be counseled about their risk of TB in the future. And it was those sort of phrases I was using earlier about coughs that are getting worse over several weeks and not responding to antibiotics. Always have TB front of your mind because it's important the patient as well as the treating doctor has awareness of the condition. Mm-hmm. Multi-resistant TB is also changing a bit at the moment as well because we used to have this thing called multi-drug resistant TB and we still do. We use this term quite a bit to refer to TB that's resistant to uh, two of our most important first-line agents being rifampicin and isoniazid. And so it still is a useful term because those still are two really important medications, but we are beginning to see other forms of TB, uh, sorry, other other types of treatment, other medications come online. Mm -hmm. And still we have pretty similar regimens for fully drug susceptible TB, but we have more and more options available for the more resistant forms. And also the regimens for the susceptible forms will likely change. So it is getting a little bit more complicated to even define what we're talking about in the first mm-hmm. place with multidrug resistant TB. Um, but, it, but it is nevertheless a big global issue. And there are hundreds of thousands of cases every year of multidrug resistant TB estimated by the World Health Organization. And they're generally much harder to treat, even though we're getting more regimens that are able to target some of these things. And they tend to emerge in settings where there's poorer antimicrobial use and people, often situations where people might have access to antibiotics outside of the formal health system. Um, And I guess the subcontinent of India has been a classic example where people can access anti-TB agents um, and potentially use them in use them for treatments through the private sector and not have that oversight over their treatment. And I guess settings like that can lead to significant um, development of drug resistance. Just a final comment on our overall responsibility to keeping TB low in terms of students, not just in Australia, but also in our neighbouring countries, particularly in the Pacific Island areas. Uh, What what can we do? Yeah, we, I mean, we did some interesting modelling on this, I think, where we looked at new cases of TB coming to Australia and how effective interventions might be around screening to prevent people reactivating in Australia. Actually, it wasn't as effective as we'd hoped because 
just screening migrants as they come to Australia has sort of limited impact because you have to identify these people, you have to test them, you make sure they're linked into care through all of these stages through treatment, make sure they finally complete treatment. And a lot of people, the risk just isn't high enough in the first place for it to be worth treating them. And yet there's still, there's a lot of those people, so they actually end up contributing quite a bit to our TB burden, if that makes sense. So anyway, I guess it's just, there's a limit to how much we can do in terms of screening programs to prevent these migrants reactivating to TB. So I think the real, probably the most important thing we can do is to support high burden countries of our region. And as I mentioned, some countries have much, much higher burdens than others. And some countries that we think of as maybe having high rates of TB actually are not that high. Like some of the South Pacific countries like Fiji and Samoa, for example, actually have pretty low rates now. They've been Mm. going down for quite a while. Mm. Whereas Papua New Guinea, some of the Micronesian countries have very high rates. um, And India has had significant rates for a very long period of time. We get a lot of migrants from India and the Philippines so um, and Indonesia. So there are quite a few countries that we get a lot of migrants from that have significant rates. And I guess supporting those countries to improve control is the number one thing we can do. James, there's a couple of questions here that, that looked at the diversion of resources toward COVID-19 and whether or not this may impact how we deal with various sorts of infectious disease, including TB. Uh, any comments? Yeah, there's all sorts of interesting ways in which COVID and TB interact. Um, Unfortunately, most of them are negative, of course. And I guess the number one thing is that we just haven't had access to TB care for so many people for the last two years. And I guess we've also had a lot of lockdowns. We've had a lot of increase in face mask wearing. So there are things that could reduce transmission a little bit, but we think that that is likely to be more than offset by the fact that people just have had more time with disease um, if they've been locked down, they've been still spending time with their family and their household members. So there's often been substantial potential, we think, for these people to transmit TB to other people within their communities locally. And so I think overall, we are going to see a resurgence. We're likely to see a resurgence in TB cases over the coming years. But hopefully, if there's any sort of a silver lining, it's maybe about decreasing stigma around infectious diseases, making face mask use more, I guess, accepted across wider parts of the community, and hopefully a reinvigoration of infectious diseases and respiratory infections and uh, resources to fight them, and a recognition that, you know, these, these infections don't respect national boundaries. We have to combat these things across the world if we're going to make any effect have any effect in Australia. James uh, do you have any final messages to our GP listeners? No we covered a lot there I think the main message is I would think to always you know it's never the wrong thing to think about TB the test is pretty simple and a sputum test is always a reasonable thing to do and there's always support available as well and there's chest clinics all over the country and people with expertise in local hospitals who are good 
points of good resources for additional knowledge. And there are patients that you particularly think about it with, but you have to think about it. It has to be, I think, on your list of differential diagnoses for just about everybody that you see, unfortunately. Lovely. Well, thank you for your time, James. It's really good to speak with you. My pleasure, David. Thanks so much. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.